Thank you, John. The passage that John read is a very dense section of verses, and we've been unpacking that over the last few weeks. I want to read another text to you that's a bit simpler. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. The old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. Before he became a Christian, Augustine was a 4th century playboy. He was a party boy. He spent much of his wealth on alcohol and women. But he also had this insatiable intellect. And he wanted to know the answers to life's basic questions. He read the book of Romans. And he was radically, totally saved. He became a new creature. A thousand years later, Martin Luther had been trying to earn his way into heaven by his good works. And he wrote this, Night and day I pondered Romans until I grasped the truth. I felt myself to be reborn. This passage of Paul became to me a gateway to heaven. It became a new creature. A couple of centuries later, in 1738, John Wesley had been miserably trying to earn his way into heaven with enough good works he couldn't quite. And then he encountered the book of Romans. Or, uh, let me state that correctly, the book of Romans encountered him. And he wrote this, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ alone for my salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins. His brother Charles wrote, the hymn, And Can It Be, that we'll be closing today's service with. It's really a theme, that's that, that hymn, a theme emanating from the book of Romans. The book of Romans is all about change. You know what? If we didn't believe in change, we just really need to pack it up and go home. If God is not real, if change cannot happen, if we cannot be forgiven of our sins and given a new identity, a change in status, a change in relationship, then what are we doing here? Playing at church? This book, this book of Romans, challenges everything that we are told by our culture about how we see God, how we see ourselves, and how we see our neighbor. Now, next Sunday, we're going to begin a new section of the book of Romans, Lord willing. Today, our study is really more of a summary uh, we're going to be walking through where we've been. We're going to look at a few of the landmarks that we've laid down along the way. All the while marveling at the greatness and goodness of our wonderful Lord who brings about change. We are new creatures in Him. So today is sort of review, overview, interview of the last section of Romans 5, and then preview of what's ahead in uh, chapter 6. So that's where we're going to be going today. And when I began this series with the very first sermon, 43 sermons ago, I told you that there are multiple outlines of the book of Romans that we, that we could use and that work pretty well. They're all, they all really follow the same trajectory. But here's the one I've been working with. The topic of justification is chapters 1 through 5. Sanctification is chapters 6 through 8. Wonderful theological words that we'll define in a moment. Vindication, 
is in chapters 9 through 11, and application, chapters 12 through 16. That's the way the, the book breaks down. And I like that outline because each section ends with a benediction or an almost Benedi- a near benediction. It's, it's, it ends with an eruption of praise. Romans 1 through 5 explain the gospel, what sin is, what we are like, and what God is like. And that section closes with chapter 5, verses 19 through 21. We're going to pick it up in verse 18 later on today. So we're going back there in a few moments. And then it immediately goes into chapter 6, which, which says, what will we say then? You know, the, the very much of a change in focus. Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? In others? What, what, what's the implication of this? Where do we go with this? Chapters 6 through 8 are about sanctification, which is really the, the results of justification in your life. But the focus is now different. Because if the gospel is true, how should we live? Chapters 6 through 8 immerse us in the question of what spiritual growth looks like. And the section closes with this chapter 8, the statement in in chapter 8, what then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? And it just goes through this paean of praise to God and ends with, I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Wow, what a wonderful conclusion to that section of how we are to live. And then chapters 9 through 11 describe the vindication of God's sovereign plan, specifically with the Jews, but more broadly with how this fits with the entire Old Testament. Because if... Does God, well, the question is, does God have a right to be God? Is he sovereign over all things? And that section closes with chapter 11, uh, verses 30, 33 and following. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Then a couple of verses later, for from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Amen. And that's the way that section Ends. And then the last section, once our thinking is clear about who God is, when both your head and heart engage and embrace these truths, change takes place. Lewis calls this the of course section of the book of Romans. If all of chapters 1 through 11 is true, if these things are true, then of course we would ask the question, how do we live Therefore, I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. And do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may be, be uh, able to prove that w- prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. And then it goes on into the ways in which we apply these truths, of course we do this. If all that is said is true, of course this is how we live. All these things, the gospel radiates out into real life. And that's what chapters 12 through 16 are about. And then it closes, now to him who is able to establish you according to my gospel, to the only wise God through Jesus Christ, be glory forever. Amen. And that is the book of Romans. That is the panoramic overview. Now, let's switch 
to a smaller lens to review chapters one through five. Then we'll give an interview of the last verses in chapter five before the preview of chapter six. First of all, turn with me back to Romans chapter one. Verse 16, Romans 1. 16, where the introduction where, where the theme of the book is introduced. How can a sinful man be right with God? And here's the answer. The righteousness of Christ is imputed to him. Verse 16, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek for in it that is in the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it stands written. But the righteous man shall live by faith. So the gospel, it, its origin is in God. Its effect is salvation. Its scope is everyone. Its condition is who believes. And it is to the Jew first and also to the Greek in it. The righteousness of God, that's the essence of the gospel. The righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. It's all by faith. And here's its unity. It stands written, the righteous man shall live by faith. The theme is the righteousness of God. How do we get the righteousness of God? Well, we don't actually get it. It is given to us. Look at verse 18. If we try to get it, here's what happens. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness. So notice the contrast. You've got the righteousness of God versus the unrighteousness of men. How do we get the righteousness of God? By having the righteousness of Christ imputed to us. I know I'm speaking very doctrinally, aren't I? This is doctrine I'm speaking, okay? Well, guess what? That's what this is saying. This is describing deep truths that absolutely matter. And Paul, almost in a courtroom drama, we'll come back to that idea, lays out before us three defendants, pagans, religious people, and the Jews. That is the heathen, the hypocrites, and the Hebrews. And he lays out the bad news first. First of all, he brings before the judgment bar of God, God is the judge, all of these the possible people on the planet. Verse 20 says, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. Who are they? In the context here, he's talking about pagan people, that is, people who deny God, who deny that they're under God's judgment, but they actually are. They choose to deny the clear reality of the creator. And he he says this. They are without excuse. They exchange God for themselves. I'm going to do what's true for me. I'm going to choose my own sexual morality. I'm going to choose my own business ethics. I'm going to put myself on the throne. And that's the problem that's laid out for these people in verses uh, the in the rest of chapter one. But while. The pagans are being uh, being accused before the judgment of God. Over next to them stand the religious people who were looking at those pagans and saying, you go, Paul, you're right. They are guilty. Those people are sinners. They are evil. Whereas we are religious people. We try to do the right thing. We, we can because we believe that God grades on the curve 
And we would agree that they're under judgment. They're very sinful people. But we're good people. We're morally upright people. And, and uh, the, the point is, chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, every one of you who passes judgment. For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge, practice the same things. Now, your sin may not be manifested in the same way, but it's in the same category. You may not murder, but you hate. You may not commit adultery, but you lust. We are all sinners, and that's the point that he's making. So pagan people are guilty before God. Religious people are guilty before God. These are the people all around us who believe that truth is determined by the size of the group of those who happen to agree with me. That's our culture. And not only that, the most religious of all possible groups. Look at chapter 2, verse 17. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God. And, he, and here he describes the most religious of all people and says that, yes, you have the word of God. You, too, however, are under God's wrath because you are a hypocrite based upon the law that you boast in. Now, chapter three says, now, there is a great advantage to being a Jew. What advantage is has the Jew? What is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. So he he describes that in chapters three, the next few verses. But the point is that their relationship with God, their history with God, actually, instead of erasing their sins, it increases their accountability. The charge remains. The Hebrew, the hypocrite, and the heathen are all under sin. Look at chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all, for we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. That's the bad news. Here's the good news. Look at chapter 3, verse 21. Since you can't be saved by the law, since you can't be saved by your good works, Here's the good news. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God. Hold on, hold your place here. Back chapter 1, verse 17 says, For in it, the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. Okay? Now, verse, chapter 3, verse 21. Apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through your good works. Is that what it says? What does it say? Through what? Through faith. Through faith in Jesus Christ. For all those who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The verb tense of the first one refers to the, our sin in Adam. All have sinned. That's a one-time event. It refers to what happened to Adam in the fall. He fell as our representative head. Lewis has been talking about this in the first verses of chapter 5. All have sinned in Adam. And then the progressive tense, are falling short. <laughs> this is what we keep on doing. So we are guilty before God because we have sin in Adam. And we are guilty before God because we commit sins daily. We can't not do that. That is... 
who we are. We sin and we are sinners. All have sinned and are falling short of the glory of God. But being justified, which means to be declared righteous before God as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Let me pause there for just a moment. The phrase, the term as a gift, being justified as a gift. The, the Greek word there, and, and here, this is one of those rich ones. It's the word that's translated in John 15, where Jesus says, they hated me without a cause. They hated me without a cause. The phrase without a cause is the same phrase that's translated here as a gift. It's one Greek word. And the idea behind it is there is nothing in the subject that brought about that result. Let me explain. There was nothing in Jesus that brought about their hatred of him. They hated me without a cause. And we are justified as a gift. There is nothing in us that brings about being declared righteous by God. We are justified as a gift. Nothing in us. It's all in him. It's all initiated by him. It's God's amazing grace. I hope you're hanging in there with me because this overview has got rich stuff in it. Salvation is not achieved. It is received, not achieved by good works. It's received through faith in Jesus Christ. Because the verses continue in verse 24. uh, I'm sorry, verse 25. Whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. And the propitiation refers to a sacrifice that took place behind the closed veil of the Holy of Holies. That's where the blood was laid and propitiation took place. That is the the forgiveness of sins, the, the removal of God's wrath. And here, Jesus' sacrifice, his blood was shed not behind the veil, but publicly, publicly for all to see on the cross. Verse 26 concludes, for the demonstration, I say, of his righteousness at the present time. So that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. In other words, he became our atoning sacrifice, removing God's wrath. And this explains how God's attributes of justice and holiness and love are harmonized. Salvation is by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Chapter 4 basically says, this is nothing new. What shall we say then that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That is, he was saved by faith. Abraham was saved by faith before the law. And then he goes on in the chapter to make the point that David was saved by faith under the law. So how are you saved? By faith. Before, after, doesn't matter. The only way people are saved is by faith in God's truth. God has not changed. And the gospel is the fulfillment of what God has promised all along. So chapter 5, what does this mean? In verses 1 through 11, you are sons and daughters through adoption into his eternal family. And this includes, this family membership includes eternal benefits. And we laid those out over several weeks 
I, you know, we started to do that in one week, and I think we ended up in five weeks. Is that right, Lewis, on that? Four or five weeks there. It's just too rich. And the, and the last of those benefits is the security of knowing that he will never cast you out. Ever. You don't have to perform to have him love you more. Can't love you more than he already does, which is not a limited amount of love. It's infinite love. He already loves you to infinity. And that's he and there's no sin that you can commit for which he has not already paid. Any sin that you commit in the future, he already died for. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? As I said, we're not saved by our merit and we're not lost by our demerit. Here's another way of looking at the story of redemption. Betsy's on jury duty. Uh, She was on jury duty, been there for a week, maybe a week and a half. Looks like she's got another two weeks, maybe three to go. And uh, she can't tell me what it's about. I know nothing. And I, I like to say that if she were to tell me about it, she'd have to have me whacked. I like to say that she hates it when I say that. She hates that. It's not funny to her. Why do I say it? Because I'm a sinner. Right? Would you agree with me that I'm a sinner? Yeah. Those who have been here the longest, yes. <laughs> okay. But she's engaged in this courtroom drama. And uh, I love courtroom dramas. I was raised on courtroom dramas. I saw, Marie, I saw the mouth go. Perry Mason, right there. Yes, Perry Mason. Remember watching those on old shows Perry Mason, his secretary, Della Street, okay, his investigator Paul, and his the all, the opposing opposing uh, counsel was all almost always Hamilton Berger, which I always thought was the funniest name, Hamburger. So how do you? <laughs> so I, I, yeah, I was raised watching these and watched Perry Mason as he would. Always, always, he was always able to drag a confession out of someone who was on the witness stand or else trip them up in such a way that it made it obvious that they were guilty and they were the murderer. It was always fun. And it was always totally unreal. But New Testament scholars, liberals and conservatives alike, refer to the book of Romans, interestingly enough, as a forensic or legal book. In fact, there's a book I was just made aware of yesterday. I'm going to give you the title of it. It's a new book. Here's the title. Forensic Metaphors in Romans and Their Soteriological Significance. It's a real page turner. Actually, it does look pretty good. But I'm not going to buy it. But let's think through Romans and, and think through a few other places in the New Testament and see what pieces we can pull together about the, dra- the courtroom drama of redemption. And I laid this out in your notes, if you would like to, to fill this in or follow along. The judge in this courtroom drama is God, the one who knows your heart, 
who knows every sin you've ever committed, who knows every sin you ever will commit. It's very intimidating to have a judge who's omniscient. The prosecuting attorney in this drama is the Apostle Paul, who brings before the bar of judgment the various defendants. The defending attorney, ourselves. Because we think we're okay. I'm not guilty before God, or at least I'm not that guilty. I'm a good person. Once God hears my side of things, he'll grade on the curve because I'm not so bad compared to other people. The charge is in chapter 3, verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The defendants, we've already talked about them. The pagans, the heathen. The hypocrites, or the religious. And the Hebrew, the Jews. Each one saying that they're better than the last one. And agreeing with Paul that the others are bad guys. The wit- I'm going to add something. I don't think I put this in your notes. The witnesses and the, with the evidence. The witnesses are creation. The world around us. Secondly, conscience. The moral compass that we have within us. So the world on the outside, the world on the inside. God, we can see through the creation that there is a creator. We know this to be true. We suppress that truth. We have conscience within us. We have a sense of what's right and wrong. We can sear or suppress that conscience. But it's the moral compass that God has given us. And the third witness is scripture, the word of God. And the evidence that's put forth is The fact that we have sin and the fact that we commit sins. It's inside and it's on the outside. The truth is we ignore God. We ignore God's creation. We ignore God's law. We suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We worship and serve ourselves. I'm on the throne of my life. The proof. Chapter 1, verse 20. You are without excuse. Chapter 2, verse 1. You are without excuse. Chapter 3. Look at verse 9. Chapter 3, verse 9. We have already charged that both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. Here's the third. So we've got creation. Without, you're without excuse. We've got conscience. You're without excuse. Here's what Scripture says. There is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they become useless. There is none who does good. Not even one. That depravity is universal. That's true in word. In verses 13 and 14. And in deed. In verses 15 through 17. And the cause is given in verse 18. In word. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing. And bitterness. And the point is he's collected some passages to point to make the point that we just can't stop sinning in, in what we say and how we communicate. But also indeed, the, the verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. The path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. That's the cause of the whole thing. No fear of God before their eyes. The verdict. Chapter three, verse twenty three. For all have sinned in Adam and are falling short today of the glory of God. 
Chapter 8, verse 7 says we are not even able to please God. What's the verdict? Guilty? Not guilty. Guilty. The sentence. Chapter 6, verse 23. For the wages of sin is... What? Death. Pretty bleak picture, friends. But then... Apart from something, well, apart from something different happening, we are totally under condemnation. If the book of Romans ended at chapter 3, verse 23, oh my, we would be in a bad state. But something entirely unforeseen interrupts and changes everything. Pardon is made available for our sins. But it's not the kind of pardon that says, you know, you've done your time. We'll account this as paying it off. And it's not the kind of pardon that says, you know, you're unjustly convicted. You're actually not guilty. No, this is the pardon that says you are fully, truly guilty. But someone else has entered into your sentence, walked through death row and already died in your place. Will you receive that pardon? And when you investigate, you learn that the judge himself came down from the bench, took your penalty, and died in your place, and that he has set you free so that sin no longer reigns over you because the penalty for sin has been paid death. Jesus paid that on the cross. So now, choose the master that you're going to serve. That's what Romans 6 is about. Choose which master. Are you going to continue to serve sin and death? Or... Will you, can, will you now serve Jesus and life? But you know what? Just as often happens in trials, there's an appeal. And this appeal is lodged by Satan. So the courtroom drama becomes even more intense. The judge is the same. God, the Father Almighty. The prosecuting attorney is this time, it's not Paul. This time, the prosecuting attorney is Satan himself. Scripture calls him the accuser of the brethren. Isn't it interesting that that phrase is in the book of Revelation, the last book of the Bible? And we see Satan actually accusing Job in the book of Job, which arguably may have been the first book of the Bible to be inscribed. So here's Satan as the prosecuting attorney. Wouldn't it be nice if we had a defense attorney instead of trying to defend ourselves? Wouldn't it be nice if we had an advocate with the Father? Oh, my. Jesus himself, 1 John 2, 1 says, he is our advocate with the Father. The charge is the same. We're sinners. Satan says they don't deserve to be forgiven. And he's right. The evidence is the same. We sin and we do. But the judge says... He's already been tried and convicted for that crime. No double jeopardy here. Throw it out. Now, I know my analogy isn't perfect, but isn't it wonderful? Isn't it glorious to be able to acclaim Romans 8.1? There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Amen? Amen. How did it all come about? How is it that Christ, in Christ we can have forgiveness, a new beginning, a new identity? It's through two key doctrines that work their way all the way through the Bible. 
the principles of imputation and substitution. I know I'm just full of theological terms here uh, today, but these are critical as we overview Romans 1 through 5. Substitution and, and imputation are all through the Bible, all through the Old Testament sacrificial system. Our sins were imputed or laid upon the sacrificial animal, the lamb who died as a substitute in our place. The sacrificial lamb foreshadowed the Messiah who himself would die for our sins. So that when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he says, there he is. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There are three imputations in the Bible. There's Adam's sin to us. And Lewis has already talked about that. We sinned in Adam. He was our representative. And by the way, if we'd been there, we would have done the same thing. But the beautiful thing is we sinned with a representative head and therefore we can be redeemed with a representative head. Jesus. So Adam's sin was imputed to the race. We all sinned in Adam. And that might. What about Jesus, by the way? Didn't he inherit Adam's sin? That, my friends, is what I believe the virgin birth was all about. So that the seed of the woman could be untainted by sin. Adam's sin was not inherited as a part of the makeup of God, the son, the God, man. And that leads us to the second imputation. Humanity's sin was laid upon Christ. I want to read to you from Isaiah 53, verse four. Surely our griefs he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. That's all of us corporately. Each of us individually has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. Our sin was placed on Jesus on the cross so that there was a moral separation between God, the father and God, the son on the cross. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And he sucked into himself all of the sins of the world, past, present and future. And also all this, all of our griefs and all of our sorrows so that the entire composite of the problem of evil was absorbed into Jesus on the cross and that imputation of sin onto him. He who knew no sin became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That's in Second Corinthians. But you know what? That's what he just said in Romans chapter one, verse 18. It's all a part of a piece. It all interlocks. So we have. Adam's sin to us, we have humanity's sin to Christ. And then the third imputation is Christ's righteousness to believers, especially laid out in chapter chapters one through five. And the way that this is taught to us is the most simple illustration in verses 12 through 21 with two individuals, Adam and Christ. Verse Romans chapter five begins. And I'm sorry, Romans chapter five, verse 12 begins with this statement. Therefore, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sin that is in Adam. And then and then there's a one of those divine rabbit trails 
where he describes and contrasts and compares Adam and Christ. And that's what Lewis has been teaching us over the last few weeks. But then he picks it up again in verse 18. Therefore, verse 12, as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin and death spread to all men because all sin. Verse 18 picks it up and repeats it again. So then, as through the one transgression, there resulted condemnation to all men. Even so, through the one act of righteousness, there resulted justification to all men. And we're going to pick it up there in, 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 in just a moment. Lewis, as I said, probed these verses and I've I've placed a grid in your notes comparing and contrasting Adam and Christ. The point is that Jesus did everything that Jesus did was to bring about redemption, was to bring about rescue. In one sense, you could say that the whole story of the Bible is contained in in six words. God forms, Satan deforms, Jesus transforms. That's it. And you look at the contrast, if you want to look at them in your notes Adam's act was Adam's sin was a human act of disobedience. Jesus on the cross, his death on the cross was a divine act of obedience. Both of them were tempted by Satan. Adam was defeated. Jesus was victorious. Adam was selfish, self-centered. He even blamed Eve. (laughs) And then he blamed God. Jesus was selfless. He emptied himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. For Adam in life, he chose death. Jesus in death, he chose life. So we receive Adam's curse by being born. We receive Christ's rescue by being born again. So we've got Adam's bad beginning and Jesus offers us a new beginning as a new creature. So I mentioned that chapter 5 verse 18 picks up the argument that we leave from that grid So take a look with me at chapter 5, verse 19. For as through one man's obedience, the many were made sinners, even so through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. And any Jew reading this would say, no, 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 the law is supposed to ease me into heaven. No, the law points out sin. It defines what it is. The law came in so that transgression would would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. You can't outgrace God. You can't outsin God's grace. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We've been talking about this word reign over the past few verses. Look at chapter uh, look at chapter 5, verse 14. Nevertheless, death reigned. Look in verse 17. For if by the transgression of the one, death reigned through the one, much more th- those who've received the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness will reign in life through the one, Jesus Christ. So, even so, grace would reign, sin reigned in death. Even so, grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And the point, if you look ahead at chapter six, verse 12, therefore, it's been sin has been defeated. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body to behave its lust. We're looking ahead there a little bit. But in the, as the last Adam, Jesus provided forgiveness for all and in. He and he also provided freedom, freedom from the dominion of sin. And here's that's what Romans six through eight 
is about. So choose the master that you're going to serve. Look at chapter 6, verse 12. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Now look down at verse 14. For sin will not be master over you. For you are not under law, but under grace. Now look down at verse 22. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you deny, you derive your benefit, resulting in, here's the word, sanctification. And the outcome, eternal life. Wow. All of this invites two questions. Look back at chapter 5, verse 20. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace super increased. That's what that word means. Superabounded. It abounded all the more. So, if that's true, what would that mean? If that's true, if grace, if sin increases, and that mean, means grace abounds even more, so if I've got X units of sin, and X plus one units of grace covers it, or X plus infinity, so does that mean that if I sin more, then I display God's glory more by having more grace cover my greater sin? So I manifest God's glory by continuing to sin and, in fact, really sinning well, right? I mean, that's look at chapter 6, verse 1. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may increase? Look at verse 15. What then shall we sin because we are not under law but under grace? <laughs> I love these two questions. I love these two questions. Not, not only do they both end with the, with the response, may it never be, right? What's the British? What a ghastly thought, right? No, 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 no. Absolutely not. So we're going there later, but... I love these two questions. I love these questions because they could never, ever be asked if any type of salvation by works were being taught. Do you see that? They could never, ever be asked unless the first five chapters had been focused entirely on being saved from our sin and from our sins by God's grace. Do you see that? Those two questions could never, ever be asked if you could lose your salvation. Sure, yeah, sin, it's gone. Well, we've done a little bit of viewing here today. This is a little bit of preview of what's coming up. I want to close by saying that Romans 1 through 5 leaves us with a challenge. Our identity is wrapped up in one of two persons, Adam or Christ. Every person in this planet is either in Adam or has been rescued from that and is now placed in Christ. These two identities say everything that there is to say about us. We have an amazing ability, I think, to rationalize our sins. I'm, I'm really good at it. To rationalize away my guilt, to delude myself about myself. We want to cover our sins with moral fig leaves with euphemisms. We want to redefine it. We want to call it anything other than what it is. We want to find ourselves not guilty. 
But as we stand before the bar of God's justice in Adam, we are without excuse, without excuse, under sin. And the verdict is guilty. And the sentence is, the wages of sin is death. But there's pardon. Because that verse continues, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. There is pardon. God offers you the opportunity to change your identity from being in Adam to a new identity in Christ. So that, so that when God looks at you, when Satan accuses you, he does not, God does not see the sin. God sees the righteousness of Christ covering you. You are in Christ. So that hopefully the world around me doesn't see me in me, but Christ in me. This is pardon. This is the free gift. As other verses say, you have put on Christ. Hell will be populated by people who remain in Adam and who do not feel themselves to be guilty. They have suppressed that truth. Why do I not feel like a sinner for the same reason a fish doesn't feel wet? We're immersed in it. It's a part of the fallen, guilty world. Hell will be populated by people who remain in Adam. Heaven will be populated by people who freely confess, I am guilty. <laughs> I cannot save myself. And the only reason I'm here is because of the shed blood of the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, including my own sin. I hope you are in Christ because the wages of sin is death. However, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Lord, I thank you for the opportunity to look at the big picture of your word, to examine these themes and see where we've been and look at the, uh, the stones that we've laid down and to revisit your grace. I pray, Lord, we'd never get over this. And I ask, Father, that as we sing this hymn, our hearts and our minds will be melded together in a deep and passionate desire to live for you, to present our bodies living sacrifice, as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to you. Father, we commit uh, this time to you and we thank you for your word. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.